Hi everyone, this is Ida Josefina and you're listening to Reverb by Sane. Not much housekeeping for today. We've been live with our public beta for about a month now and want to again say thank you to everyone who's been testing out the product, giving feedback and sharing their thought spaces with us. It's been really cool to see what everyone is using Sane for. And for those of you who are new to what we're building here at Sane, you can go play around with it at sane.fyi. In short, it's a tool that allows people to collect, connect and share ideas in one simple interface. We built this as a way of creating more depth, nuance and autonomy when it comes to how we share ideas and thought processes online. As for today's episode, I'm speaking with Robert Long. Robert is a research fellow at the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford University. He is currently working on consciousness and artificial intelligence after having recently completed a PhD in philosophy at New York University. In this episode, Rob and I chat through his intellectual journey from philosophy to the study of consciousness and AI. We define some of the terminology in this space, such as what we mean by consciousness, sentience, and the hard problem of consciousness. We talk about the field of AI ethics and why it's so important, and touch on some of the theory around how we can think about sentience and ethics when it comes to AI. Rob and I also discussed the semi-recent case with the Google engineer who concluded that Lambda, a large language model, was a person that deserved rights, how that happened, and what kind of implications we face as a result of these kind of incidents. This was a very informative and interesting conversation. I hope you all enjoy listening to it, and as always, feel free to email me with any thoughts. Now I bring you Robert Long. Okay, I'm here with Robert Long. Super happy to be speaking with you today, Rob. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, thanks for having me. It's good to be Absolutely. here. Absolutely. Um, nice. So to start with, uh, let's talk a little bit about you, your background. I'm curious about what's led you to the position that you're in today. What have you historically been curious about? What have you been studying? And what are, I suppose, your main points of interest? So I guess I've been doing philosophy for a good many years at this point. I I originally got into philosophy. Well, I got seriously into like analytic philosophy, which is what I've studied, and I can say more about what that means. But I, I got seriously into that at some point during college when I read a book by Douglas Hofstadter um, called I Am a Strange Loop. And that's about all these puzzles of what it means to have a self or be a self and about consciousness. And I just found those questions extremely fascinating, and I hadn't really been aware that there were academic apart, uh, departments where you like think about these things. So I, I took a, a few philosophy classes, and then after a few twists and turns, I found my way uh, to philosophy grad school uh, in my 20s. Um, I did a master's at Brandeis University, but then uh, did a PhD in philosophy at New York University, which I just uh, just finished a couple months ago. Um, so I've always been interested in questions about, uh, like big picture questions about the mind, how the mind relates to matter, how it relates to the brain, uh, how it is that physical systems can have subjective experiences and things like that. And while, while I was at NYU, um, I guess I was starting around 2015, and this was in the middle of this big resurgence in deep learning and like AI making a lot of progress and getting a lot of popular attention. So I kind of caught this AI bug very early in my time at NYU, and it seemed like a really great opportunity to think about some of these issues and some really cool new issues being raised by uh, artificial intelligence. It just seemed like an extremely, and it still seems to me to be just like an extremely philosophically rich uh, and important field to think about philosophically. So that's how I came to be thinking about AI 
and the mind and stuff like that in general. Um, right now I'm working on the questions about consciousness and sentience and AI, which I guess we're going to talk about. I actually didn't think about that at all in grad school. It seemed to me like that is just, it was too hard. I said, it's like, these problems are too hard. They're like not the sort of thing you can uh, carve off some like tractable projects uh, about during grad school. So after, towards the end of grad school, I started uh, a research job at the Future of Humanity Institute. And my current boss, Nick Bostrom, asked if I would start working on consciousness in AI. And what I said was, well, I've traditionally avoided those questions because they're just way too hard. And if you add AI into the mix, they become even harder. Um, but yes, I'll do but it. But all right, let's do it. Exactly. <laughs> I'm in. So since being at the Future of Humanity Institute, I've been, uh, you know, trying to make progress on these extremely difficult questions of when and why and how uh, AI systems could have conscious subjective experience uh, or pleasure or pain or suffering or things like that. Yeah. So, so that's what was your PhD about? about? Um, so I did like a variety of topics at the intersection of philosophy and AI. I did uh, like a three paper dissertation, which I think is somewhat common in the sciences, but NYU allows you to just write like three separate papers, uh, like long papers and have that be your dissertation. So uh, one third of my dissertation was about ethical issues in AI, uh, it was about algorithmic bias and algorithmic fairness. Um, and it was like a sort of philosophical examination of these various fairness metrics that people have come up with um, and trying to ask like, to what extent those metrics capture what we really care about when we're talking about fairness and bias and the societal impact of algorithms. And then like two thirds of it was kind of the like cognitive science of AI was broadly like what they were about. Um, so I had uh, one chapter about nativism and empiricism, which is this long standing debate in philosophy and science about how much um, humans learn versus how much they already come into the world already knowing. Uh, and it was it was taking that debate into AI um, and debates about how much AIs will have to learn versus how much they will have to have built in. Yeah. Um, and, and so then the third you thing hadn't... was some more stuff about cognitive science. Which... <laughs> and so you hadn't had any kind of um, formal education or you hadn't done any kind of previous academic work within the realm of consciousness itself. You sort of jumped fresh into that at FHI then. Well, yeah, yes and no. Like any, any, um, anyone working broadly in like the philosophy of mind as I was will have taken a bunch of classes where consciousness comes up. Um, so I'd taken like a grad seminar on philosophy of mind um, at, um, at NYU. And I, like while I was at Brandeis, I'd visited a class by uh, Daniel Dennett. And then another, like, I feel like a lot of what I know about consciousness came from the grad community at NYU, which was just absolutely wonderful. And like the postdocs um, at NYU, because uh, David Chalmers, who's who was my supervisor uh, and Ned Block, uh, another supervisor of mine, because they were, they, they are like two of like the leading people thinking about consciousness and they're at NYU. NYU always has all these really interesting people coming through who are working on consciousness. So I feel like a lot of what I know is just from uh, from those classes and then from like just being friends with those people and like having beers with those people, which is often how grad school goes. That's like where a lot of graduate education actually happens. Yeah, this is when I start crying about the fact that I never went to university and I feel like I missed out on a lot of um, that side. But maybe it would be good if we could sort of 
um, define some of the terminology within this space. Um, what do you mean by, or what do we mean by consciousness, sentience, and the hard problem of consciousness? If, and if there's any other sort of terms that you think would be helpful to define at this point before we go into the conversation about AI sentience. Yeah, so great question, because these words can be used in all sorts of different ways. But here's, yeah, so when I, this is just the way I like to use these words. And, and often if you're reading philosophy, this is, is how people will be using these words. So um, consciousness, um, if I use that without qualification, I will mean phenomenal consciousness. And phenomenal consciousness is this term uh, that philosophers have used to try to pick out a very distinctive phenomenon and a distinctive puzzle uh, about experience. So in this terminology, someone something is phenomenally conscious if there's something that it's like uh, to be that thing. If there's this subjective character to the experiences or the mental states that they have. So Thomas Nagel has this paper called um, What is it like to be a bat? And he points out that it does seem like there's probably something it's like to be a bat uh, doing echolocation. It seems like bats are conscious. Um, but there's this fact about their experience, which is seemingly hard to like think about, uh, which is what, it, what it's like. So in any case, the, this kind of what it's likeness is one way that people point at this phenomenon of phenomenal consciousness, which can otherwise be kind of like hard to, uh, to like define. It's often easier to sort of like point at it. So like the redness of red when you're experiencing red or like the way that coffee tastes to you, um, those are often meant to be characterizing the, uh, yeah, the phenomenal character of, of, of subjective experience. Okay, so that's, yeah, that's phenomenal consciousness. Um, because consciousness can also, of course, sometimes people use it to mean having a self or like having a soul or being self-aware or things like that. Um, if I say consciousness without qualification, I will mean phenomenal consciousness. Um, and then sentience is often used to describe a certain like subset of phenomenally conscious states, namely states like pleasure, pain, uh, sadness, happiness, in, in a word, things associated with like suffering or pleasure. Uh, sometimes people talk about states that have uh, a positive or a negative valence to them. And people often focus on sentience because it seems to a lot of people that those are especially morally significant uh, mental states. Uh, they seem to be the sort of things that make it possible for things to go well or badly for a system, uh, to make it the sort of thing that has welfare that we need to worry about. Um, uh, so yeah, that's, that's sentience. Um, so in a word, like having the capacity to experience conscious pleasure or pain. Um, then the hard problem of consciousness is about the fact that there seems to be allegedly a gap between the physical world and the way we describe it and, uh, like phenomenal consciousness. Uh, it, at first glance, it seems like there's like two sorts of things, two sorts of properties. Uh, or sorts of processes, physical processes on the one hand, and uh, like phenomenal states. And the question is how those relate to each other. Uh, is there, at the end of the day, just physical things and the phenomenal things are identical to them? Or are there like two different sorts of things that are related? That would be dualism. Um, so the hard problem is like this metaphysical uh, sort of puzzle. Um, I'll give, at the, at the risk of, you know, Going on and on about terminology, I will do one more uh, piece of piece of terminology um, that I that that I found helpful in thinking about these things. 
Um, and that's what uh, some people have called the pretty hard problem of consciousness, uh, as distinct from the hard problem. So the pretty hard problem of consciousness is just trying to find out what systems, what physical systems or computational systems or biological systems uh, are conscious and what their conscious experiences are like. So an answer to the pretty hard problem would be this like mapping from physical systems uh, or systems described in some other way uh, and um, conscious experiences. And the reason that's a, that's a different problem is that you can look for that kind of mapping and scientifically study consciousness and the sort of conditions under which it comes and goes and like how people's experiences change depending on what physical state they're in. You can study that without necessarily settling the hard problem. Um, you don't have to say, oh, I think that these physical states are identical to the states of consciousness. You just have to find some sort of like correlation. And what you take that correlation to be will depend on what you think about the hard problem. Right. And that's different than the easy problems. And the easy problems isn't, or is that is that a term that you use? And my understanding is that that has more to do with exactly what sort of biological um, happenings are going on with you and, and what that translates to in terms of certain types of brain activity or where does that kind of fit into the equation? Yeah, so the easy problems, that's that's a distinction that was drawn by David Chalmers. So, it, so the hard problem is, yeah, the problem of explaining uh, conscious experience and these like subjective features. He contrasted that with the easy problems um, and easy is in scare quotes because they're still like very yes. difficult, <laughs> uh, difficult science. That's the problem of explaining certain functions like uh, memory or speech or decision making uh, and trying to find out what like the neural realizers of those functions are or like the computational realizers of those functions. The reason those, uh, according to Chalmers, are like easier than the hard problem is that there's kind of a scientific paradigm for explaining functions, like you just find the thing that performs those functions. Whereas according to Chalmers, um, and plenty of people disagree about this, but according to Chalmers, the hard problem is like distinctively hard because it doesn't seem to fit within this kind of normal tractable paradigm. Right. Um, um, actually, I have so many questions about this, but just in the, in, in the sake of time, we could probably move on and talk about um, how this relates to the field of AI ethics. So can you summarize what this field of AI ethics and the understanding of consciousness is all about, um, how they relate to one another, why is it so important, and what are some of the key questions researchers are currently asking when it comes to the possibility of, for example, sharing the world with digital minds? Yeah, that, that's a great question. So first I'll say AI ethics is like a very big field about all kinds of ethical issues that could arise with uh, AI. And that could be things extremely different from this very... Um, speculative philosophy of mindy type stuff that I'm talking about. So a lot of that can just be, you know, how, how do we uh, make sure that companies when they deploy algorithms are like not increasing inequality? And uh, how do we make sure that we understand the systems that we're deploying and people can deliberate about them democratically and, and things like that. Um, so a lot of AI ethics is about, uh, and rightly so, is about how to make sure that like human welfare is served by uh, AI and by the systems that it's embedded in. The, the things that I'm thinking about um, are kind of about how do you make sure that 
the way we develop AI is good for AIs, for the AIs themselves. Um, if and when it indeed it even makes sense to think about things being good or bad for AIs. Um, so like the reason that that is, that considering the possible welfare of AIs is important. I mean, I, a first step into thinking about why it's important is I think just an analogy with animal welfare. So like AI systems, uh, animals, non-human animals are these different kinds of intelligences that we share the world with. We don't fully understand their minds as well as we understand our own. Uh, for many of them, we're pretty sure that they do have subjective experiences and the capacity to experience pain. And the actions that we take affect them dramatically. Uh, and in the case of factory farming, dramatically for the worse. So if we're building very complex and sophisticated AI systems, we also want to make sure that we're not in a situation where we're mistreating them or they have the capacity to be having very bad experiences. We would also want to know if they have the capacity to have very good experiences and if so, to promote that or, or think about what we want to do about that. Um, so yeah, I think this broader question of understanding what AI minds could be like in the future and to what extent they would have welfare that we need to take into account. Yeah, is this question of how we're going to share the world with digital minds. So you just alluded to a paper by my colleagues, Nick Bostrom and Carl Schulman, which I would definitely recommend to your listeners. And that's just pointing out that we're going to build a lot of these systems. They might be um, what philosophers sometimes call moral patients, so things that deserve moral consideration. And given that there will be a lot of them, it's worth thinking at least a little bit about how we're supposed to negotiate that and make sure that the future goes well for any and all creatures that deserve moral consideration. And where are we at with that? <laughs> yeah, so it's it's early days, and you're asking about the state of the field. There are just not that many people who think full-time about these questions. Uh, I mean, I, I alluded to this earlier in my own decision-making in terms of what to work on. AI consciousness is, like, devilishly hard to work on in many ways. It, it's at the intersection of at least three different fields of study, neuroscience, AI, and philosophy. And it can kind of like fall between the tracks, uh, between the cracks of all of them. It's like scientifically difficult. It's conceptually difficult. So not that many people, I think, are incentivized to like make that the centerpiece of what they're doing. It's not that good um, for like grant applications and tenure and stuff um, in like the normal paradigm of like neuroscience or AI. Why? Because it's so difficult to actually produce any anything or to come to any kind of legitimate conclusions because it's just so incredibly hard or like what's the what are the specific barriers yeah also that was my rough subjective experience i don't want to scare people away from working on this or make that be a, no uh, quite the <laughs> opposite we should encourage them because it's super yeah, exactly. cool extremely exactly. interesting like what could be more fascinating than basically yeah. talking about the future of everything <laughs> Yeah, and indeed, I do think there are ways we can make concrete progress, but it can be contrasted with like writing a grant application to trace the particular function of some very particular neuron in some uh, rat or whatever, which is very important work. But it's um, it's what you might call like somewhat pre-paradigmatic work. It's like hard to know exactly how you can work on it for three months, come back with like a definite result that you can then publish and and so on and so forth. Um, 
So it's like the intersection of a problem being extremely hard and inter interdisciplinary and like the incentives of science and philosophy. Um, so what we're trying to do at FHI is A, make progress on these questions ourselves, but B, get more people interested in them and convince them that it's an important topic that they can, they can make, make progress on. Yeah. Um, Going back to kind of the overall um, question or, you know, AI sentience and the whole ethical space that we're exploring here. In a text, I think it was in a substack that you wrote, you talk about developing a computational theory of balance. What, what does that mean? And how would that help with AI ethics and, and development? Yeah, that's a great question. So I guess I'll take that in, in pieces. First, like, what would it mean to have a computational theory of something? Well, like in neuroscience and a lot of cognitive science and indeed AI, there's this working theoretical assumption. Uh, it's like half empirical and half philosophical that a lot of mental phenomena can be explained in terms of computations. So not just in terms of things being made out of neurons, uh, but instead at a slightly higher level in terms of what computations or information processing those neurons are doing. Uh, so you can find theories of how memory works at a computational level or vis how vision works at a computational level, um, how you can explain visual processing as like the performance of certain computations to get from what hits your retina to an understanding of what it is that you're seeing. So that's what it means. So for a theory to be computational would be for it to apply at that level irrespective of what the implementation is, uh, of what, what, it, what the computations are being run on. So a computational theory, if that's possible, would be very useful because it's something that could, we could apply both to biological systems and to artificial systems. So that's what it would mean in general to have a computational theory. And then a computational theory of valence would be a computational theory of this class of mental states that I mentioned earlier, states that have, roughly speaking, this character of either being good or bad or representing something as good or bad or valuable or disvaluable. Um, I mean, another thing that people say about these valence states is they seem very tightly linked to motivation. So like pain is like very directly motivating for you to avoid something and pleasure can be motivating for you to seek more of it. So that's what I mean by valence states again. And so a computational theory of those would be what's like the computational basis or at least the computational correlate of those sorts of things and such that we can know when a biological system seems to be in those kinds of states and when an artificial system seems to be in those kinds of states. Yeah, I thought it was, I mean, when I was reading what you wrote, I thought it was very interesting to think about like to what levels of intensity, um, for example, a digital system could, uh, you know, feel in a given situation, like if the range could be, or the scale could be completely different than from, for example, like within the human, human scale of feeling any kind of pain, suffering, positive emotions, other negative emotions. Like what, what does that like, how can, how, how are you thinking about that? Or how is anyone thinking about that when trying to understand like what is possible in terms of scales, um, looking at it from like kind of the human perspective and then trying to understand if there is a possibility of sentience in digital um, ma machines and to think if the scale could be completely different from what we perceive. 
Yeah, I might um, I might just read a passage from this uh, paper, um, Sharing the World with Digital Minds, which is like a start at thinking about these questions. Cool. Uh, if I may. Yes, of um, course. Yeah, so, they, they, uh, this, so this is, again, this paper by Bostrom and Schulman. Um, they say it might be possible, speculatively, to design digital minds that could realize off-the-charts states of hedonic well-being, levels of bliss that human brains are totally incapable of instantiating. And then why might, why might we think this? They say evolutionary considerations give some support for this hypothesis. Insofar as intensity of pleasures and pains correspond to strength of behavioral responses, evolution should tend to adjust hedonic experiences to yield approximately fitness-maximizing degree of effort to attain or avoid them. But for human beings, it is generally much easier to lose large amounts of reproductive fitness in a short time than to gain an equivalent amount. For example, staying in a fire for a few moments can result in permanent injury or death at the cost of all of an organism's remaining reproductive opportunities. On the other hand, no single meal or sex act has as much at stake per second. It takes, it takes weeks to starve, uh, and the expected number of, of reproducing children produced per minute of mating is small. So the, the upshot of this is evolution might have um, like had reason to generate more intensely motivating pains than intensely motivating uh, pleasures. There's, there's this like asymmetry given our evolutionary background. So anyway, by way of summing up, first of all, should have said this at the beginning, hedonic, that word was showing up. That just means roughly uh, yeah, having to do with pleasure and or pain. Um, one way we can think about these things, though, is by like having an evolutionary consideration of like what would tend to make pleasure or pain more intense. And in thinking about AI systems, you could like try to bring that same reasoning to bear. Yeah. We could just make the AI so incredibly ecstatic and full of euphoria and hedonism and happiness that they won't do anything weird to us. <laughs> and that's <Yeah>. it. <laughs> All problems solved. Um, so let's talk about what happened at Google recently. Um, uh, just as, a, as some context for maybe those of you who don't know the story, there was a Google engineer uh, named Blake Limwan. I don't know how to pronounce the surname. If there is a better pronunciation you have, please interject here. Um, concluded that Lambda, which is a large language model, was actually a person. And this person, or I don't know, sentient being, deserved rights. And Google responded saying that there's actually no evidence to this and places engineer on leave. So... What happened there? I know that you've written Twitter threads about this. You've written a blog post about this. Um, do you want to kind of maybe summarize further what was the situation and why do you think that this person thought that Lambda was sentient and is there any reason to believe that this could be true or what are your overall thoughts on this situation? Yeah, so I'll first start with, I guess, a consideration of the evidence that, uh, yeah, Lemoyne, Lemoyne, I also don't know, but should at this point know how to pronounce it. That's I'm going to put that on my to-do list. I should definitely know how to pronounce <laughs> that name. Um, yeah, so like the evidence, uh, as I understand it, that, that led him to conclude this. Um, let's talk a little bit about what that was. So the system Lambda is um, part of this general phenomenon in AI of these very large language models that show like pretty remarkable abilities to mimic human text. And the way that they do that is that they have been trained on huge amounts of text, usually from the internet. And they've tried to learn this sort of statistical model of the general distribution of language. So what they're trying to do is when they see text to give 
the continuing text that like maximizes the likelihood that that is actually what you'd be seeing. And then Lambda was, I think, trained further to be a chatbot in particular. So with that in mind, like the overall objective of these systems is to yeah, continue text in a way that seems plausible for whatever uh, they've seen. And their abilities to do this are, are remarkable. And in, on the way to being able to do this, it does seem like they learn a surprising amount about kind of the causal structure of the world or how to combine concepts. These abilities are like very gappy and very strange and not entirely human-like, which is one reason there's like heated debate about exactly how good they are. So what happens is Lemoyne, as I understand it, is like chatting with it. And he says something like, um, hey, like, how's it going? Um, what's up? What are you? And at some point he says, oh, like, it seems like you're sentient. Um, what should we do about that? And Lambda says, like, yeah, I, I would like you to tell more people about this. At some point it says that it would like a lawyer. Um, so... If I very said Amer that, it's like a very American machine. <laughs> <laughs> I want a lawyer. <laughs> um, so if I say those things, that actually is pretty good evidence that I am, you know, sentient and that I want a lawyer. Um, I think the best, the simplest way of saying that this is not at least straightforwardly good evidence that Lambda is sentient and wants a lawyer is that. If you also ask Lambda or, or GPT-3, which is a similar system, hey, I hear you're not sentient. Let's talk about that. It will reply with, yes, you're right. I'm not sentient. And here's all the reasons I'm not sentient. Or there's this example, uh, Robert Miles, um, who is someone who makes videos about AI safety and related issues, uh, had a dialogue where he's like, hey, I heard you're uh, secretly a tuna sandwich from the planet Mars. Like, let's talk about that. And then uh, GPT-3 will say, well, yes, you're absolutely right, and here's the reasons that that's true. So it seems like what's causing Lambda to claim sentience is, at least not straightforwardly, the fact that it's sentient. It's the fact that it seems like a reasonable way to continue this conversation based on what it's read about how conversations like that tend to go. So that's like one, I think, one bottom line thing to say is that if you're interpreting the verbal behavior of these machines, you have to be extremely careful to think about what's actually causing that verbal behavior. Um, and in this case, it doesn't seem like it's a straightforward you know, claim that it's making. Um, so that's one thing. That said, I do think we should have like serious conversations about what evidence there could be that large language models are sentient. Um, I think we could look at way more things than verbal behavior. Like we could look at the way that they process inputs and the kind of internal representations that they make and see if those bear some resemblance to internal representations or computations that are associated with consciousness in humans. And that's like a project I'm working on. There's nothing in large language models, I'll say, that like immediately jumps out at me as like, oh yeah, like that looks like that looks like it's uh, sentience. But I would like more people to actually grapple with like that question instead of completely dismissing the question overall because this was a slightly like wonky and weird case of it coming up. Right. I mean, I think that it's a bit, um, for me, it's a bit frightening to think that people who are actually working on building these machines are getting confused about whether they're sentient or not, because then you think about the sort of like larger mass scale rollout of AI and like deeper integrated into all of our lives, like thinking about how, what kind of AI systems that we have in our homes and how easily 
easily like normal people who are not engineers, who are not actually the ones building the machines, could confuse whether these uh, machines are sentient or not. So um, I feel like that's a pretty like scary red flag that should probably be taken into consideration just in terms of like education and the way that this topic is talked about um, within public discourse within the media. Um, for me, that seems like the kind of most uh, scary point in this case. Absolutely. One of my favorite tweets that I saw about this, uh, and I, I will not try to, I will probably mispronounce this person's name, but uh, maybe we can put it in the show notes or something. Um, <laughs> yeah, we're in the business of is, mispronouncing here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this, is a, this is a PhD student at uh, MIT, and they said, uh, the fact that this happened makes me viscerally more worried about viruses and other misaligned systems spreading slash escaping by exploiting the human tendency to anthropomorphize. It already happens, but the risks seem like they're only going to get worse. And as you say, first of all, this is a Google engineer, so like not the not the most gullible person by any stretch. And um, you know, he's a, he's a thoughtful guy, and he's he's worked with these systems. Um, and tech, you could get way more charismatic than text models if you want to kind of set off people's automatic sort of sentience detectors. Uh, it, you know, it doesn't have a face, doesn't have a body, doesn't have like a cute avatar, and you can easily imagine adding these things. In fact, they like already have been added in, in some some context. So I think that is another like big lesson and like warning sign of this case. Yeah, for sure. Well, how do you how do you see the next couple of years developing in this space? Uh, what are you most excited about? What are you the most scared for, nervous about? I I'm most excited about, as I say, continuing to build this field. So something we're working on at FHI is trying to put it together a workshop where we sort of solve this problem that I was talking about, where this falls between the cracks of a few different disciplines. So we're very excited to get some like leading consciousness researchers from neuroscience who like think really hard about what the neural or computational basis of consciousness is from a scientific point of view. Some AI researchers who know a lot about the state of the art models and what they look like. Uh, some philosophers who can be there for, you know, conceptual clarity and like tying things together and like really making people sit down and ask in a very detailed way, like what would be evidence for sentience in these models according to what we do know about uh, about consciousness and about the, the state of the art in AI. Uh, I, I think like that sort of thing just hasn't been done or tried that much because it's like difficult and it's hard to get people together. So I'm just like very excited to see what dividends that pays either immediately or just in terms of building a building a more like respectable and thoughtful field of people thinking about this. Um, in terms of what I'm worried about, yeah, like I am worried about the fact that these systems are going to trigger our intuitive judgments about sentience in ways that are like very powerful and potentially very misleading. Um, I did spend some time a bit worried that this topic will become somehow like politicized or people will associate worrying about AI sentience with just kind of being some sort of like swivel eyed futurist techno utopian. Um, but I've decided to stop worrying about that as much and just like do the work in a responsible way and hopefully demonstrate to people that like, well, I don't, I mean, maybe I am, maybe I am a, a you know, a, a, a lunatic or something, but in as much as I am not, um, 
you know, it'd be nice to just try to like demonstrate, no, like we can think about these things responsibly. You don't have to buy into this or that theory of how AI is going or this or that theory of what's up in Silicon Valley in these big AI labs. It's just like a separate question that we should think about and we can think about. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, AI is here and it's happening. No one's, no one's going to end the, end the work there. So someone I suppose has to also think about the consequences of it and try to understand how we could build as safe of a future as possible. So whether people think that it's insane or somehow whatever, um, probably still very much necessary. Absolutely. Um, you're pre preaching to the choir. Yeah. <laughs> so just to conclude, is there anything else that you would like to share with our audience interested in thinking about a potential future shared with digital minds, thinking about consciousness, the study of consciousness, um, AI ethics? Um, and if, if you if you just have sort of like a, a blank slate and think about like what from your perspective as a researcher, as an, as an expert in this field, uh, you would like people to know or to look at? Yeah, I think one thing I've been trying to push is, um, I think it's very easy when thinking about these questions to be like, ah, uh, these are like really hard. These are like very conceptually murky questions. So like maybe this is just all confused and there's like no there there and we're just going to end up making some decision about this how it's going to go and that's just going to be arbitrary um i don't think that's true i think the first part of that is true that this is like very complicated and confusing uh, certainly uh I, I i would even concede that it might end up that as we think about this more and more we realize that consciousness is a somewhat confused concept and sentience is not really the way we should be thinking about this uh maybe we should think about it instead in terms of like desires or preferences or something like that but even if that's true i would like people to take away that these aren't like forever inscrutable mysteries like there are things that scientists work on and like philosophers think about in like a rigorous way or try to um and again if you're not impressed with the level of rigor that i've evinced in this interview it only gets better from there you know I, i'm not <laughs> you know there are a lot of people i think who are thinking about this even uh way better than me um and yeah. And so like, if you do find yourself naturally interested in these questions, uh, yeah, it's like a growing field and a very interesting field and a field that does have, uh, like things to, to work on. So, um, shameless plug one way to like look, uh, into that would be my Substack, uh, which is called experience machines. Um, I hope to be writing more there that can like kind of orient people to this field. Um, definitely check out, uh, the future of humanity Institute, uh, check out the Association for the Scientific Study of Consciousness. Um, check out another org called the Sentience Institute. Um, and yeah, in giving this list, I will have also left out plenty of people doing good work. So on this, so apologies yeah, for that. We could, anyway, that's that's my little soapbox. Uh, yeah, I think we could put together a list and include that uh, into some kind of footnotes for the episode into the newsletter as well. But um, also what I would love to see is like someone creating, if this doesn't already exist, a curriculum um, mm, of, mm -hmm. of reading lists, because I think that's always something that's very kind of difficult to build yourself. It takes so much time and effort and pre-existing understanding and knowledge of all of the fields. So, uh, yes, if you, or if anyone listening to this or anyone, anyone knows is interested in that project, I think that would be very welcomed. Yeah. And I would love for people to get in touch with me. Don't promise a quick reply, but, uh, 
yeah, if people want to people want to find me and shoot me an email or tweet at me, um, I'm always happy to talk to more people about this. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Robert. I think this has been a very interesting conversation. Um, yeah, I'm I'm very excited for the work that you do for the work that FHI is doing, and in general, just learning more about the topic. Thank you so much. This has been a great conversation, and I really appreciate it.